Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, well, howdy, WCC. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue our series in the book of Colossians. So uh, Colossians chapter 1, and uh, just a very quick recap. Basically, Paul has been saying how awesome Jesus is. That's the bottom line for the first part of Colossians, how awesome Jesus is. He's the maker of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. And he's the reconciler of his people. And, And Christ did that. He reconciled his people to himself through his death on the cross. And now in verse 24, which is what we're going to start in today, Paul is going to talk about his own ministry. So we're going to look at today, we're going to look at Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29. Um, and, and we're going to look at verse 24. I'm going, to, I'm going to begin by skipping over it, and I'll tell you why. It's one of the most difficult passages actually in the New Testament. It's by far the most difficult passage in the book of Colossians. We'll come back to it. But just remember, what, the main thing to remember on this is Paul is talking about his own ministry, his gospel ministry of making the Word of God fully known. Okay, let's, so let's just go through the passage. Let's look at verses 24 to 29, and then we will walk through it. All right, Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which, he said, the church, of which I became a minister. I became a minister of the church according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Okay, so Paul is talking about his own ministry, and you can see this. Verse 24, he talks about my sufferings for your sake. Uh, He talks about suffering for the sake of the body, the church. He says in verse 25, I became a minister of the church. At the end of verse 25, he says to make the word of God fully known. That's his calling, to make the word of God fully known. Uh, In, uh, let's see, verse 28, he says, him we proclaim, okay? So I'm telling you that just to let you know, again, that Paul's focus on here is on his gospel ministry as an apostle to proclaim the Word of God. And, and as I said, we'll get to verse 24, a very difficult verse, but I think if you begin to understand that what Paul's talking about is ministry, then it's easier to understand, okay? So I'm going to skip verse 24, and let's go on to verse 25, all right? And we're going to come back to 24 at the end. We're going to close with it. So verse 25, Paul says, he says, he's talking about the church, and he says, of which I became a minister, I became a minister of the church, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. 
So Paul says, I became a minister of the church. In order, with, he says, the stewardship from God. Okay, this, this message, that he's now a steward. He's been entrusted with this message to be faithful. Sort of stewards. He wants to be a good steward of the gospel message. To make Christ known. And he said, that was given to me for you. And then he says, and this is a great summary of his ministry at the end of verse 25. This is Paul's ministry, to make the Word of God fully known. That's what Paul wants to do, is to make the Word of God fully known, okay? And he says, he's, again, he's talking about the church, and he was, he's a minister for the church. He's not a, uh, a superstar. He's not a guru. He's not a conference speaker. He is a minister of the church. That's what he is called to be, to make God's Word fully known. And then in verse 26, he says this strange thing. He says, The mystery, and he's talking about the Word of God, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And Paul says again in in verse 27, he talks about the mystery, okay? In fact, let's just read 27. He says, to them, to God's saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. So Paul is saying that the the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is, he's the God-man, he's come to reconcile his people, to save his people, this gospel is a mystery. But when Paul says that this is a mystery, he doesn't mean that it's only for like super Christians or for like these upper echelon of people with this super spiritual knowledge. When Paul says that the gospel is a mystery, what he simply means is that the gospel up until this time has not been known. And now God is revealing this mystery to his people. So it's not, and you can tell that Paul's not talking about some super spiritual group because later on he talks about how the gospel is for everyone. He repeats over and over again, this is for everyone. So, the, so the God, this mystery is that God has, been, has, has kept hidden the truth about Christ and now he has revealed it. And the only way, that this is the way it is for us, the only way that we can know about who Christ is and what he's done for us is if God reveals it to us. We can't look around in nature and see, oh yeah, I see that Jesus died on the cross for me. The only way we can know this mystery is by God revealing it to us. And so now he says this has been revealed for us. And he also says this, and you can see this in verse uh, 27, he talks about the Gentiles. The, the part of the mystery that is now being revealed is the fact that Gentile believers are coming to faith in Christ at a big rate. When the Jewish people thought about the Messiah coming, what they thought was a national Messiah, a king who would have this sort of big military in Israel, and then it would be all Jewish people would, would follow the Messiah, and then slowly they thought the Gentiles would come into faith. But they thought it would be very slowly and it would be primarily Jewish people. So part of the mystery is that no one saw this coming, that by and large Jews would reject the Messiah and the gospel would spread to Gentiles very quickly. No one saw that coming until Christ came. So this mystery now is being revealed. And it's not only Christ, but it's how the the plan for God to bring in the nations to himself through Christ, how this mystery is now unfolding. And so that's what Paul is saying about this this mystery. Um, And then he says this little phrase, and this is so important for us. Look at verse 27. He describes part of the mystery. He says, The glory of this mystery, 
which is Christ in you. Okay? What does that mean? Christ in you. It doesn't just mean Christ being in some place doing something, whatever that would mean. It means Christ in you, Christ in God's people. One of the things that I think is so important for us to understand is this idea of our, the believer's union with Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. So when Paul uses the word Christ in you, or he uses this, this phrase, in Christ, he'll say brothers in Christ, or we are in Christ. In fact, at the very beginning of the book of Colossians, that's the way he describes it, brothers in Christ. And it's something like in the New Testament, Paul uses this phrase, in Christ or in him, something like 160 times. Okay, so this is what Paul is saying. When he says that Christ is in you or you are in Christ, it means the same thing. There's no difference. Paul's talking about our union with Jesus Christ. And this is what it doesn't mean. When Paul says Christ in you, he doesn't mean like there's some little person or something like physically in you. Or if if he says that you're in Christ, it doesn't mean that you are in some location which is Christ. And we use terminology like this. We say, she is in love. Look at her. She is in love. You can tell. Well, that doesn't mean that she is in a physical bubble that is called love, right? She's not in a place that is called love. Or or if we say this, I'm in trouble. I am in trouble. I'm in big trouble. I'm in deep trouble. That doesn't mean that I'm in a physical place that's called trouble. What do we mean by that? When we say that someone's in love or in trouble or in Christ, what we mean is that we are so closely associated with this, it's like it is part of who we are now. So if someone is in love, it's just, you can just see it. It is just taking over them. They are in it. They are, it is part of who they are. Or, or in a bad way, I'm in trouble. That means it's just, I, I can't separate myself from it. It is part of who I am. It's a bad thing. Well, in, in a good way, we are in Christ. What this means is that, that we are so tight with Jesus. We are so uh, related to him. We're in him. We have this relationship with him that is so close, okay? The things that he has done on behalf of his people are just like they've been done for us. Or, or things that, that happened to him, it's like they've happened to us. Or, and this is a beauty too, for us, things that have happened to us, it's just like they've happened to Jesus. There's this connection and Paul talks about this throughout his writings. It is, in my view, union with Christ is maybe the most important teaching of the New Testament that is by and large neglected today. I, di- I, just, I just do not hear preachers talking about union with Christ very often, and it's all throughout the Scriptures. And it's so important. It's so important for our love for the Lord, our sense of His presence with us, our growth in grace. Just all these things have, have to do with our union, our fellowship with Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, and you'll see what I'm talking about. I'm tempted to go into a whole sermon series on union with Christ, and I may in in the future, but I just want to hit it right now for you to see just part of it. So Galatians 2, look at verse 20. And this is sort of, again, a hint of our union, our relationship, our closeness to Jesus Christ. Galatians is a few books to the left. So Galatians 2.20. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, Paul, no, you weren't. You weren't crucified 
with Christ? And he says, oh, yes, I was. Why? Because I am such in union with Jesus Christ right now. I've been crucified with Christ. What happened to Jesus is just like what had happened to me. And then look what he says. This is incredible. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul says, it's not even Paul living anymore. It's not even Jeff living anymore. For a Christian, we can say, this is not even really me anymore. This is Christ. This is Christ in me. This is Christ who lives in me. Because the union, the fellowship between God's people and Jesus Christ is so tight. And Paul would say, yes, of course, I'm Paul. But he's saying his, his relationship, his, the presence of Jesus with him is so overwhelming, there's just almost no difference. Now think about what that does for your sanctification and your growth in grace and your growth in holiness. If you know Jesus is right here, right? You have this union with him. That should give you pause when you think about sinning because Jesus is right here. You have this union and fellowship with him. And in the same way, too, think about the comfort in the times of suffering. We'll talk about this. The times of suffering. You know Jesus is right there with you, sharing in those sufferings with you. It's amazing. Again, this is a huge thing for God's people, and I think we neglect it. So I've been crucified with Christ. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. Colossians 3.3, we'll look at this later uh, in our sermon series. But Paul says this, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You died. You, You don't even really, there's a sense in which you don't even really exist anymore because you are so hidden in Jesus Christ you have this union, this fellowship with Jesus that is so close. It's almost not even you anymore. You died, and your life is hidden with Jesus now in God. So this, this idea, I'm going to move on. Uh, like I said, I'm tempted to stay here, but I'm going to move on. But I just want you to begin thinking about all the times you hear about this in Christ or Christ in us means the same thing. It's our, our bond with the Lord our fellowship with Jesus Christ, and it is sweet, and it is glorious. And I would encourage you to think on these things this week. All right, so Paul then says, Christ, back in in Colossians 1, verse 27, he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What he means by that is, is Christ, his presence with us is our hope of glory. It's sort of like his presence with us is a down payment for us. And it's going to be fulfilled in glory. It's going to be fulfilled in heaven. It's going to be fulfilled in the future. And so we have this hope, this confident expectation that this presence that we have, as wonderful as it is, it's not going to compare to the hope of glory that we have of being with Christ, really, and seeing him face to face, beholding him face to face. All right, let's go to verse 28. Paul says again, this is about Paul's ministry. Verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul says that we are to proclaim Christ. But notice this, it's not just to make converts. It's not just to make converts and then leave them as babies in the faith. Look what Paul says. Look what his goal is at the end of verse 28. He said that we may present everyone, what? mature in Christ, mature in Christ. And I can tell you this, if there's anything the American church needs, it is maturity. The American church is just really, really immature. American church is filled with babies in the faith. So Paul is saying, 
We don't want to just win converts and then say, okay, let's move on to something else. What he, look what he says. He says, we proclaim him. And then he says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, teaching, wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And also you can see the beauty of the gospel. It's hinted at. But look at this one verse. Notice that I'll stress the word here. Who is the gospel for? Think about your friends and family. Who's the gospel for? Listen. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The gospel is for everyone, right? The gospel is for everyone. It's not just for a certain group of people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. And we want to be a part of this making mature disciples of Jesus, growing in maturity. Another way of saying maturity is wholehearted devotion to Jesus. That's what that means. We want God's people to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus Christ. All right, verse 29. Again, Paul is talking about his gospel ministry. And he says, for this I toil, to, to, to warn, to proclaim Jesus, to teach, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. And again, this should be our goal as well, that we would struggle, that we would toil, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And in all the work that we do, it's not of ourselves, is it? Look what Paul says. He says, all his energy that he works in us. Yes, we work, but ultimately the source of anything that we accomplish in Christ, anything we accomplish for the kingdom of God, the glory doesn't come to us. It comes to Jesus because he works in us. He gives us the energy, the drive to carry out his, his commission. And, and, and I can tell you this, that the people of history throughout the church history have done the most for Christ and the people that, that where Christ has worked in them the most have been the people who toiled and struggled. As Paul says in verse 24, suffering, suffering, toiling, struggling, all this goes together. And the, the, the people that God has used the most are the ones who have intentionally struggled for the kingdom, who have taken risks for the kingdom. And that's what I want for my life, and that's what I want for your life as well. To work hard, to be exhausted. That's the implication here, to just be exhausted. D.L. Moody uh, was an uh, evangelist teacher, and he would, he would work really hard, just to, to the point of exhaustion, maybe too much. But he had a point of praying before he went to bed every night. And one night he was so tired, as he's falling into bed, his prayer was this, Lord, I'm tired. Amen. That's his prayer, and that's kind of what Paul's saying here. There's nothing theologically deep about that, is it? Lord, I'm tired. Amen. And he's dead. He's out to sleep. So that's what God wants for us. It's just to toil, to work. And as we do that, Christ works in us. His energy works in us to bring him glory. Okay, so this paragraph, again, is about Paul's ministry of proclaiming the word, building up the church, teaching to, in order to expand the kingdom of Christ, all right? To allow the gospel to go forward. Okay, that's what he's talking about here. Now let's go back to verse 24, and this is the tough one. Paul says this, and we'll get to the tough part, but first he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and here's the weird part. He says, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Okay, and we go, huh? What does that mean? 
What in the world does it mean that Paul is saying that he's filling up in Christ what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, this passage is so difficult, but I think there, there's some keys here. and I think there's some teachings for us. God says that all scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable. So even this verse is profitable. And I heard a famous preacher preach through this. And he basically came to this and he said, I have no idea what it means. And he spent 20 minutes talking about how parts of the Bible are difficult. Okay. I appreciate his honesty, but it doesn't really help out in teaching you what the passage says. So I think Paul has something for us here. But, but first says, look at what Paul says in 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. Why does he say, why does Paul say that he rejoices in his sufferings? Remember, he's talking about the spread of the gospel. Well, one is this. Jesus told Paul early on that Paul was going to have to suffer. He told him, right? Paul had been persecuting the church. Paul had been making the church suffer. He'd been arresting Christians. And on the road to Damascus, when Jesus confronted Saul, that's his Hebrew name, one of the things he tells him is, Saul is going to have to suffer for me big time. He warns him about that. He said, Paul's going to be a minister to the gospel. I mean, a minister to the Gentiles with the gospel. And he's going to have to suffer. Okay? So, Paul, so Jesus tells, now think about it. Jesus says to Paul, you're going to be a minister for me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And you're going to suffer. Okay? So in Paul's mind, and this is the way the scripture is, when the gospel goes forward, the gospel and suffering go hand in hand. Suffering goes with the expansion of the kingdom. And oftentimes we as Americans don't like to hear about how suffering is necessary, but it is. And Paul sees that suffering must go hand in hand with the proclamation of the gospel. And I can tell you this too, if you want to look at it, you don't have to look at it now, but but in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul goes through some of his sufferings. And I'll just give you a few of them. He was stoned once. He was beaten with rods three times. He was shipwrecked three times. He was imprisoned multiple times. Okay? He had friends leave him. You ever had a friend leave you? Paul had friends leave him in the gospel. He says, I lost all things for the sake of the gospel. And one of the things that, that strikes me, and maybe I'm just a wimp, but this one gets me. Paul says, five times I received at the hand, this is in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, or 40 lashes minus one. The Jews, they had this idea, I think the idea was this, that, they, that 40 lashes would kill a man, so they dropped one off. So this is the most severe form of punishment. And Paul had 39 lashes five times. Have you ever had a, a, a strap of leather or a whip go across your arm? I, can get, I get chill bumps when I think about the stinging about that right now. Paul had big, strong men who knew how to use a whip and knew how to tear flesh off the back. He had that done to him. Not 10 lashes, 20 lashes, 39 lashes. He had the, his back shredded for the sake of the gospel. Now think about this. The back starts to heal up. He starts to get better. Then he's arrested, and it happens again. The flesh is torn off his back again. Then after that, it heals up, and it happens again and again and again. Five times Paul endured this. This is just one aspect of the suffering that Paul went through for the sake of the gospel. 
And he still cares. He's imprisoned. He's lonely. And he still wants to proclaim the gospel. And Paul says this, I rejoice in my sufferings. How could he rejoice in his sufferings? Because one, as I said, he understood that suffering is necessary for the gospel to go forward. Also, Paul understood this, that suffering is necessary for us. Suffering is necessary for us. The only way that we can truly grow in our faith is through suffering. We need the Word of God. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the church. We need one another, and we also need suffering. We need it. There is just certain things in our lives, the only way that we can grow in grace and grow in our love for the Lord, grow in our faith, grow in our love for for other people, is through suffering. Why is that? Well, one suffering, one of the things it does, it shows that we're not in control, right? When you're in a place of suffering, you realize, I have no control over this. There's nothing I can do. And what does that do to us? Drives us to Jesus. It drives us to Christ because we're not in control. It forces us to draw near to the Lord. Also, suffering does this. It allows us in a real deep way to be able to sympathize with other people who are suffering. If you, look, if you have a life that is carefree and nothing but pleasure and ease, and you see someone else who's suffering and struggling with whatever it is, it is very difficult for you to sympathize because you've never gone through it. But if you've gone through tremendous suffering, you're able to sympathize and understand with people who are suffering. And God uses that. Now, Paul's not saying when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings, he's not saying that he has a smile on his face when those whips are going across his back. This is not a, a, a trivial thing. But Paul is saying in a deep way, he has this deep joy. It's not happiness. <laughs> it's not pleasure, but it is a deep joy in Jesus Christ because he also knows that God is using this suffering for the advance of the kingdom and for his own soul, to grow him in his Christ-likeness. A.W. Tozer said this, He said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It's doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. And I think that's right. I think that's right. Ponder this one. This is Hebrews 2.10. Hebrews 2.10. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. He says that Jesus, okay, Jesus without sin, the perfect Son of God, fully God, fully man. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Jesus, without sin, needed suffering. If Jesus needed suffering to be complete in some way, which I do not understand, I'll tell you that. I don't mind telling you that. I don't understand how Jesus needed something to, 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 to be perfect in some way, to be complete. Because he's already perfect. But the word of God says that Jesus had to have suffering, had to endure suffering to to be made perfect or complete. The bottom line is this. If Jesus needed suffering, you and I need suffering. We need it. If Jesus needed to feel afflictions, you and I need it way more. You and I need suffering. We need it. We need it. When people look back on their lives... This is one of the things that suffering does. It it, it produces deep roots in the Lord. And when people look back on their lives, sometimes they will talk about their vacations to the beach. Sometimes. But you know what they will always talk about? The deep 
afflictions and sufferings that they've gone through. Why is that? Why do people at the end of their lives talk about just tremendous pain and suffering that they have gone through? Because God uses that to transform us in a way that pleasure and comfort doesn't. You, you, you listen to people, when they look back, and, and God oftentimes uses this suffering to get us outside of ourselves and begin thinking about other people. Think about ministries that are started. I've seen so many ministries and, and charities where uh, someone has a child die, and they immediately begin doing other things to help other people. It brings about a sense of holiness, a sense of purpose, a sense of vulnerability, God just uses tremendous suffering in the lives of his people. Do I like going through suffering? No, I do not. (laughs) I can't stand it. But what I have understood, what I've began to understand over the years, is that God uses it to make deep people who love the Lord and are pressing into him more. I don't know if you know who Johnny Erickson Tata is. Johnny Erickson Tata, age 17, had a diving accident, quadriplegic. What, What has she done over the years? countless ministries to encourage other people. Francis Chan, who's a pastor I respect, Francis Chan said Johnny Erickson Todd is the most spirit-filled person he's ever seen. She's a quadriplegic. A few years ago, she had breast cancer. Now she is dealing with this pain throughout her body, which is rare for quadriplegics. Normally, they don't feel it. And yet God is using this suffering, and this is part of what Paul is saying too. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Look at verse 24. For your sake, he's talking about the benefit of the church. This is the way Johnny Erickson Todd is. Her, her suffering ends up being a blessing to other people. It goes out to other people. And oftentimes you see this in the church. The, the suffering not only helps individual Christians, the blessings flow to those around us. If, you, if you've been around people who are suffering and they talk about it, and this is what I would encourage our, WCC, you guys to talk about it, share it. Don't, don't go into isolation mode. Don't go hiding. That doesn't help the body. Share Share what God is doing. If you've seen people who are suffering, oftentimes the blessings flow out to others in a big way. I think that's why Paul is saying that that he can rejoice in his sufferings for for the sake of the church. Okay. All right, so let's go to the most difficult part then. Verse 24, Paul says that in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What in the world? Honestly, I I struggled with this for a long time, just on my own. What does that mean that that Paul is filling up what is lacking? How could there be anything lacking in Jesus' afflictions? One of the things is clear. We know that Paul is not saying that Jesus' death on the cross was somehow insufficient. Okay, we know that because you can go a few verses before this. And in verses 19 and 20, Paul, in 20 and 21, Paul says, Through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. He talks about you who are alienated. He's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So Jesus' death on the cross fully accomplished salvation for his people. We don't need to add to anything. There's a Catholic teaching that talks about the treasury of merit that acts like we could do something to fill up what is lacking as far as salvation. That's not what Paul is saying at all. Everywhere Paul says that the death of Christ on the cross paid it all. Jesus on the cross said it is finished, right? He said he didn't say it's partially finished, it's finished. So 
Paul's not talking about salvation here. Again, remember the context. He's talking about his ministry. Okay, so what does Paul mean when he says that I am filling up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? I think what Paul is saying is this. Remember back to our union with Christ. Okay? You know the first words that Jesus said to Saul? It was on the road to Damascus. You can read about it in Acts 9. He said this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul would be like, huh? I'm not persecuting Jesus. I'm persecuting followers of Jesus. But Jesus says, Saul, you're persecuting me. When you are beating these Christians, I am the one who's being afflicted. I am the one who's being persecuted. Again, this union with Christ, right? Jesus is so intimately connected to his people that when his people suffer, Christ suffers. So that's one key, I think, in this. That Paul says what is, he's filling up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I think he's, one of the things he's connecting is, remember, I am no, it's no longer me. It's Christ who lives in me. So when I am suffering, there's a sense in which I'm filling up what is lacking. And I think this is the key. When the Bible talks, there's a number of other times in the New Testament where it says what is lacking. And what he means by that is just they are not physically present. So he talks to the Philippians and he said, you sent this representative to me and that gave me what was lacking in what you gave me. In other words, the, the whole church at Philippi was not with him. I know this is confusing, but hang with me. The whole church at Philippi was not with Paul, but they gave him this gift. But this man like Epaphroditus comes to Paul and Epaphroditus filled up what was lacking in the church. In other words, I think Paul is simply saying this, that Jesus is not bodily present on earth. Jesus is not bodily present. And the amount of sufferings that are going to take place for God's people, for the gospel to go forward, Jesus is not here to have those afflictions, but Paul is now stepping in. He's filling in. He's taking in his body what is not going to Jesus. So Paul's filling in the gaps to receive the afflictions that are in some sense lacking because Jesus is not physically here. I think that's what he's saying. Also, there's this idea in uh, Jewish thought. There was this idea, and you can see it in some places in Revelation, that there has to be a certain amount of suffering before the kingdom of God is fulfilled. So there's a passage of Revelation where uh, the, the saints are asking how long before Christ comes, and, and God says, wait until the full number of martyrs happens. There's like a fullness idea of suffering before something else takes place, okay? So I think Paul may be thinking that. Also, there's this, and, and if you have children, see if you resonate with this. Have you ever seen your children suffer, and you thought to yourself, if I could take your suffering, I would. Anybody ever thought that? I don't know. I haven't heard anybody talk about that, but most people that I've talked with about them, if they look at their child's suffering, they think, if I could take your suffering right now, I would. And I think Paul, that is in Paul's mind too. I think Paul realizes that there's a spiritual warfare going on. And Paul thinks, if I can take some fire from the enemy, if I can draw it to myself, then I'm in some way filling up what the body of Christ is not getting. I'm, I'm taking the fire, and I'm happy about it. And as parents, we've, we've felt that with our kids. Hey, I would gladly suffer. Kids, realize most of your parents probably have thought that, that your parents have probably thought, if I could take your suffering, I'd do it. 
And I think that's part of Paul's love for the church, that he rejoices in these sufferings. He wants to fill up in his body in some way these afflictions. Okay? All right, what is the application for us on this whole thing? How are we to suffer for the spread of the gospel? Because, again, that's what Paul is talking about, the whole ministry. For some of us, it may be missions. And I can tell you this, my prayer is, and I'm, I'm praying that God would send adults or young people to put a call of missions on their lives, to take the gospel to places where Jesus is not proclaimed, where his word can be boldly proclaimed. That's my prayer, is that God would raise up lots of people. So missions is one way. Uh, giving. Giving for the sake of the gospel. We can support missionaries. We have a lot of wonderful missionaries. Justin prayed for one this morning. We pray for our missionaries. They're doing very hard work, and they need our support. They need our prayer support, and they need our financial support. That's one way that we can sacrifice. Take a little suffering. Is that a lot of suffering? It's not, right? It's very little, but we can take in a little suffering for the spread of the gospel. All right, what about this right here in our community? Okay. Anytime you talk, this is funny about evangelism. Anytime you talk about evangelism, here's my experience. People usually feel guilty for about 15 minutes during the sermon, and then they move on and go on to do something else, and there's no real change that takes place. And I get it, because most of us would not say that we're gifted in evangelism, right? Most of us feel weird talking to people about Jesus, okay? I'm a realist about that. I do want us to be better. And some of you are gifted in evangelism, and you can do it with ease. But for many of us, giving our testimony or sharing the gospel is difficult. So what is one of the ways that we can, like Paul, share in suffering a very mild way for the gospel to spread? I mentioned this in an email I sent out this week. I think simply being on the lookout around you and inviting people to church. It's pretty mundane. It's pretty normal. But being on the lookout for people around you and asking God to just reveal people to you that you can simply invite to church. Remember, God, remember Paul says, look back in, uh, in uh, verse 25, the end of verse 25. Paul says he is a minister to make the word of God fully known. Well, I can tell you this. I want to teach the word of God, but one of the ways that we can make the word of God fully known is have people here, Right? People hear, if I'm standing here by myself, no matter how much preparation I do, if I'm talking to a wall, the word of God is not being fully known. So I think inviting people, and this is the perspective I want to give you about inviting neighbors, coworkers, friends, family, whoever, just to invite them to church. When I was an agnostic, I didn't come to faith in Jesus until I was 25 years old. I was agnostic, skeptical of Christianity, made fun of Christians, all that. Just not a pleasant person when it came to Christianity. But here's the thing. And when people would, would sometimes share the gospel with me, frankly, it was weird, and I'll tell you that. But when people invited me to church, oftentimes I would go. I was receptive to that because my mindset was this. They, I know that they go to church, and they, have, they enjoy their church. And when they invite me, it's like them loving me and wanting me to be a part of what they're doing. It's like, it's like being at a party and getting invited to a party. Or in high school, I was barely invited. I, was, I look back now, and actually God has used this this week to show me and remind me. When I was in high school, I was almost never invited to church. In fact, I don't ever remember any of my friends inviting me to church, and I had a lot of Christian friends. But when I got in college, I was invited, and I would go. And I remember sitting in college to a couple of times that I went 
Uh, I went to a Bible study I was invited. I went to church when I was invited by friends that I liked. And I remember sitting in church and looking at the preacher and listening to what he was saying and thinking about the Word of God as he was teaching it. Now, you think about friends, family, coworkers around you that you could invite And oftentimes just being in here is much easier because there's not a one-on-one sort of confrontation. You just sit there and you listen. But you'd be surprised at how many non-Christians will say yes to an invitation to come to church and will listen to the preaching. God can make his word fully known. God can spread the gospel through a church. And I can tell you this too. I'm not just bragging on you. This is the most loving, kind church I've ever seen. It really is. And I'm not just saying that. It really is the most hospitable, loving, kind church I've ever seen. And we live in a very lonely society. I see more and more articles about how loneliness is an epidemic in our society. It really is a problem. And we have, God has given us an opportunity to find people around and invite them to church to show that we care about them. In fact, if we don't invite them, they may think like me, oh, you don't want me to be around. If you're not inviting people to church, it may, they may think this. Oh, I guess you don't want me to come to be in your, in your church. I get it. But if we invite them, they may not come, but if we invite them, we at least show that we care. And, and they will be welcomed in this body, won't they? Won't people be welcomed in this body? People are not shunned when they come in this room. People are welcomed because this is a loving, hospitable place. We, in other words, the pieces are in place for God to allow us to be used in a very simple way, not much suffering. Right. I'll tell you what, if you ask somebody to church and they give you 39 lashes, you're excused from inviting anybody to church ever again. I doubt you're going to get 39 lashes for inviting somebody to church. Okay? We have an opportunity, I think. And the point is not to make our church bigger. I honestly, if they want to go to another Bible-believing church, praise the Lord, go. It's not to make our tribe bigger. It's because I want, I want us to be used by the Lord for the kingdom to spread. That would be a joy. And it's happening. And the pieces, as I said, I just see the pieces in place for it to happen. So just ask the Lord to, to bring people to mind, coworkers, friends, that live anywhere in this area, simply to invite them to church. And invite them repeatedly. Invite them repeatedly. As I said, when I was an agnostic, I was flattered and honored when people invited me to church. I was honored because I thought they want me to be a part of what they're doing, which is very cool. So in that, I'll just close it with that. In that way, be praying that the Lord would allow you to participate in some way. If you have an opportunity to share the gospel, do it. But please be thinking about inviting folks to church in a very practical, real, real way. And in some very small way, are we suffering? Not really, but it's a way for us to take a risk for the gospel. And my prayer is that God will use that to expand his kingdom. And and think about, what if you invited someone to church, they came to faith in Jesus Christ, and later on they look back and they said, thank you for inviting me to church. That was awesome that you did that. That I came to faith in Jesus, that I love my Savior, and God used your invitation to church for me to come to faith and, and to be a part of a group of people that love me and care about me. Thank you for inviting me. Wouldn't that be a joy? Think about that. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the example from the Apostle Paul who is willing to suffer for the spread of the gospel. We praise you for that. Uh, Thank you that we have the opportunity. God, like I said, you've just put things in place where you have given us uh, an opportunity to invite folks and to be used by you as instruments in your hands. 
to bring people to yourself. And, Lord, in suffering, thank you that, that we know our suffering is not in vain, no matter what we're going through. And we know, Jesus, that when we suffer, that you suffer with us. Lord, help us to think about that this week, that you, Jesus, are suffering with us. Lord, help us just to treasure that and rejoice in it. God, we love you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church family, just how loving and sweet they are to me and my family. Thank you for what you're doing and what you've done. And we pray that in all things, Lord Jesus, that you would be exalted, that you would get the glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.